Lord God, thank you so much that we can come here, that we can meet together, that we've uh, again enjoyed a little bit more freedom, a little bit more outside outside time this week, Lord, and the beautiful beach. And um, yeah, and I thank you that we can then come together now and read your words, learn from you, Lord. And I ask that you would speak to us and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so, Ken, we're now starting chapter 7 of Paul's letter to the Romans. And again, quick recap, first five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul was dealing with the issue of justification. What is justification? Being declared righteous. Being declared righteous. And he essentially makes the case that there's two different ways that we can be justified, that we can be declared righteous. The one is on the basis of our works. What are our works? Uh, the things we do, like, to be to be righteous. Yeah, it's the things that we do, whether good or bad, sin, or, like, being, like, helping old ladies across the street, whatever. It's the things that we do, the things that we think, it's our actions. Uh, so that's the one way we can be justified, and the other way we can be justified is on the basis of our faith. And so, basically, our trust in God and our trust in Jesus, that those are our two options. And if you're going to be justified on the basis of your works, that relies on God's law. If you're going to be justified on the basis of your faith, what does that rely on? God's grace. God's grace. And so those are our two options, right? We can either stand before God on the basis of our works and be judged according to his law, Or we can stand before God on the basis of our faith in Him and rely on His grace. And in those first five chapters, Paul makes the case very, very powerfully that no one is going to be judged. Nobody is going to be justified. Nobody's going to be declared righteous on the basis of their works if they're judged against God's law. Because every single one of us have broken God's law many, many, many times. And so our only hope for justification is to rely on God's grace. And God promises that if we trust Him, if we put our faith in Him, then He will declare us righteous, which is something we don't deserve, which is grace. And so Paul closed that part of his argument in chapter 5 with with the line, Now the law came in so that transgression may increase, but where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in other words, that first bit that's really important. The law came in so that transgression or sin would increase. So God's law doesn't make us righteous. It doesn't sanctify us. Because remember, that's what sanctification means. Um, it It makes our sinfulness more obvious and it makes it more obvious to us that we cannot, that we will not be justified according to our works and that we have to rely on God's grace to justify us. So that was chapters one through five. Now in chapter six, Paul, well, not now, last week, last couple of weeks, when we looked at chapter six, Paul shifts from talking about justification, how we're going to be declared righteous to sanctification. What is sanctification? Being righteous. Being made righteous? Yeah, being made more righteous. And so, okay, God's promised to declare us righteous, 
on the basis of our works and uh, on the basis of our faith. And so our works, whether good or bad, are irrelevant now to our justification. They have nothing to do with our being justified. And so then the question is, well, does that then mean it doesn't matter whether we sin? And Paul's answer was, no, absolutely not. But not absolutely not for our justification, absolutely not for our sanctification. God has declared us righteous. Now he wants to make us righteous. He wants to build us to make us into the kinds of beings that can enjoy his presence forever. And if we want to be sanctified, then we cannot keep sinning is the idea. Now, we often talk about the difference between conscious, like intentional sins, where we know what we're doing and we choose to do it anyway, and more like accidental sin, where like, where we commit sins even though we're trying not to, if that kind of makes sense. And to me, the main difference between intentional sin and unintentional sin is like relates to repentance. So basically, when you sin, do you feel the need to repent of it? And generally, I would say that when we when we mess up and do something that we didn't want to do, we tend to feel guilty about it, right? And if you feel guilty about it, that hopefully should lead you to repent of it. And if we repent, it says in 1 John, confess your sins, faith, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. And so... If we repent of our sins, which generally happens when we sinned unintentionally, when we did stuff that we were trying not to do or we didn't want to do, if you repent of your sins, God will forgive you and he'll wash you clean. And so like, that's okay. That's exactly what God's grace is there for. But it's a little bit different when you sin intentionally because you know, like we know we shouldn't sin, right? And so if we're going to do this thing, then we have to convince ourselves that the thing that we're doing is not actually wrong. And if it's not actually wrong, well then, what do I need to repent for, right? And so that's what tends to happen. And that's where things like, that's where it gets dangerous. That's where your sin can seriously hinder your sanctification. It's not so much in the repented sins, because there's a, there's a solution for that. It's in your unrepented sins. It's in the sins that you don't feel like you even need to repent for. And anyway, so if we go back to Romans chapter 6, Paul talked about two different types of sins. He talked about like in the first 14 verses, he talked about continuous habitual sin. And then in verses 15 to 23, he talked about occasional sin and like at first glance, it might seem like maybe what Paul is differentiating that he's distinguishing between in those two parts of chapter six is between continuous and occasional sin. But I don't think that's actually right. I think that in both cases, Paul was, Paul had willful sin in mind. Uh, more precisely, I think he was worried about unrepented sin. To me, Paul's concern in chapter 6 is that people would use the grace of God as a license to sin. To think that because they're under God's grace, 
they can do what they like. They don't need to repent. They don't need to apologize. Um, and, and so in the first instance, what they're saying is, can I sin continuously without feeling guilty about it and without the need to repent? And Paul's answer is, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then in the second instance, they're saying, okay, but like, can I sin occasionally without needing to feel guilty or repent? And again, Paul's answer is absolutely not. And there he says, do you not know that you are a slave to the one which you obey? And so in other words, if we want to be sanctified, if we want to be made righteous and be freed from the power of sin in our lives, then we cannot obey sin. We cannot surrender to it or accept it in our lives. Accept it, yeah. Be comfortable with it in our lives. Not continuous sin, nor even occasional sin. Again, that's not to say that we're not going to sin or that we should feel like we're going to be like, like we lose everything if we do sin. That's not it at all. If you sin, confess your sin, and God will forgive you. It's not a problem. It's expected. But what is a problem is if you think that you don't need to repent for your sins as a Christian now that you've been saved by grace. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Then in verse 14, so halfway through, at the end where he'd finished talking about that continuous sin, uh, Paul made this statement. He said, Sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under the law but under grace. And so that's quite a claim, right? That's really the key to everything. If we want to be sanctified, that's what it means. Sin cannot control us. And sin, Paul says that sin will not control us. Why? What does he say? Sin will not control under grace, not the law. Because we're not under the law, but under grace. That statement, that, uh, what? That proposition, that claim that Paul is making, that because we're not under the law, sin won't control us, that's the, that's the statement that chapter 7 is going to lead on from. Paul is going to start explaining, or yeah, he's going to explain why it is that we're not under the law, how it is that we came to be under God's grace, and why that means sin will no longer control us, will not have mastery over us. So that's what we pick up in chapter 7. Who wants to read the first three verses? Anybody? Not this week. Okay. So, Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is lord over a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of the marriage. So then, if she is joined to another man while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law 
And if she is joined to another man, she is not an adulteress. So I think, I think that's pretty straightforward, what it's saying. Paul is basically, he's demonstrating the principle that death ends any obligation or contract under the law. Yeah? And that principle is illustrated really clearly in the case of marriage, which is till death do us part, right? As long as you're both still alive, you're bound to each other. by the law, but once one of you dies, then that contract is done. You're not bound to it any longer is the point that he's making. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Once you die, or the person that you're in a contract with dies, the contract is over. So then he says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another to the one who is raised from the dead to bear fruit to God. So this is really interesting, especially in light of our studies of the book of Ruth, because Paul is using the analogy of marriage to describe our relationship to the law. For those who are here for the book of Ruth, who is the law or like what, where is that represented in the book of Ruth? Uh, the mystery named man, the other guy. The other guy. There were actually, so it's a little bit confusing because there were two mystery named people. There was the there was the servant, the chief servant, who wasn't given a name, Boaz's chief servant, who introduced Boaz to Ruth or Ruth to Boaz, uh, and we said that that chief servant who didn't have a name was uh, represented who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's helper. Boaz's helper, God's helper. Then there was the other guy. When Boaz wants to marry Ruth, he wants to redeem Ruth. He says, I want to redeem you, but there's somebody else. And they kind of have first rights. And it's only if they choose not to redeem you that I can redeem you. And we don't. that guy is not given a name. He's called, well, Boaz calls him what's-his-face, basically. Like, yeah. And anyway, so that other guy who was Ruth's more immediate means to redemption, like the easier way or the, the, the first option she had for being redeemed was represented the law. And that's what's, what Paul's picking up on here is that we were married to the law. We were married, it's like we were married to that other redeemer, to Ruth's other redeemer. Uh, so in our natural state, before we've been uh, justified before we've been brought like, well, yeah, before we've been saved, we were married to the law. We were subject to it. We were judged by it. And our future was bound up with the law, but we don't want to be married to the law. We don't want to be married to that other redeemer. Who do we want to be married to? Jesus. Grace. And grace. Book of Ruth. Who Boaz represents. Yeah. We want to be married to Boaz. Who did Boaz represent? Jesus and Grace. Yeah. Well, we'll get there in a sec. But yeah, we want to be married to Boaz. We want to be married to the Redeemer that actually loves us. And so, but you can't be married to two people at the same time because that is called... Adultery. 
adultery. So we cannot at the same time be married to and judged by the law and be married to and judged by Jesus. We can't be subject to the law and subject to subject to judgment, the judgment that comes through the law and be subject to the judgment, the, the freedom that comes through Jesus at the same time. If we want to be married to Jesus and we want to be uh, subject to the judgment that's found in him, then somebody has to die. That's the idea. And if you remember what Paul said in chapter 6, because he made a real big case of that, this, he said, Do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. We know that our old man was crucified him, with him. We died with Christ. So in chapter 6, Paul made the case again and again and again and again that when we identified ourselves with Jesus, we identified ourselves with his death. We died, right? Through Jesus' death, we died. And because we died, the case he's now making in chapter 7 is that means we have been set free from the law. Basically, we've been legally separated through death and uh, we're now free to marry somebody else. Who? Does he say? What does he say? My brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead. Who's that? Jesus. Yeah. So in other words, we're no longer married to the law. We're now instead are married to Jesus. And it's really important not to miss the significance of this because the consequences are like monumental. When we were married to the law, we were subject to it, which means we were judged by it. But the law is dead to us. It's not just moved to the side. It's gone. It cannot judge us ever again. That marriage is over. And so understand what freedom that brings, right? Like, like actually think what that means, that the law is gone. There is no more law for you. You cannot be judged by it. You are now under Jesus. And that will lead to what Paul is going to say in chapter 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is one of the most like fantastic verses in the entire Bible. If you think about what it means, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law is dead. There is no law to judge you on. And if there is no law to judge you on, you cannot be condemned. That's the idea. So we're married to Jesus and in Jesus there is like absolute freedom. Last thing on that, those verses. Why have we been joined to another? What does he say the purpose is? Or at least a purpose in this verse. To bear fruit to God. To bear fruit to God. 
We could probably spend the rest of this morning just studying what, well, no, we wouldn't have enough time to study what the Bible has to say, like, about fruit. Because that picture, the, the picture of fruit, is used throughout the Bible and it's used extensively by Jesus. Last time, uh, do you guys remember what Nate taught on last time he was teaching? The vine. Yeah. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. And so it's really important to remember that we're not the ones who produce fruit in our lives. Jesus produces fruit through us. But uh, for now, I would say that, well, okay, so what is the fruit? When, when Paul says that we have been joined to Jesus, we've been united with Jesus in order to bear fruit to God, what is that? Do you think? What fruit is our unity with Jesus supposed to produce in us? Sanctification. Sorry? Sanctification. It's, yes, very, well, one of, so, yeah, one of the things I would say is, so one of the things I would say that, one of the fruits that, well, I'll put this. I think that, he, that it can mean a couple of things. And I think that one of the things that it means is essentially sanctification. Uh, it relates to our character. It's the outward visible proof of our sanctification. And it's probably best described in, um, in Galatians. Yeah, Eden says character. It's described in Galatians uh, chapter 5, where Paul says, But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. And so basically, the more time we spend with Jesus, the closer we get to Him, the more we start to look like Him, the more people should start to see this fruit in our lives, in our character, that we exhibit more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, and more self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit, and that is, some, that is, I would say, one type of fruit that our unity with Jesus is supposed to produce, which is essentially at least part of sanctification. And interestingly, I don't know if have you guys seen what the... Um, Theme for summer cultivators. I haven't been on Instagram in a while. It got announced last night, I think. Yeah, I think last night or Friday night. It's uh, it's well, it's actually it's a mashup. It's uh, what I can't remember exactly how he's put it, but basically it's combining Hebrews and Galatians, and it's dealing with like how our faith produces fruit. And this passage here is one of the two key passages for the Cultivate uh, theme for this year. So that's kind of interesting. But this is a really important passage and this is imp important in terms of the fruit that God wants to produce in us. 
And then the other thing I would say is probably like the, the other way that I think fruit is often used is to talk about basically bring uh, what more believers that through your sanctification and through your witness, you would multiply the children in the kingdom of God say that you'd bring more people to Jesus. So I would say those are the two main fruit that our uh, unity with Jesus is supposed to produce. Yeah. Okay, so we've died to the law and we've been joined to Jesus. And then Paul says, does anybody want to read those verses, five and six? I'll read. Cool. Uh, Romans chapter seven, verse five to six. Five and six, yeah. But when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay. What was, can you just start verse five again? What did it say? But when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the controlled sinful... By our sin... Okay, good. So... So when we were controlled by our sinful nature, in here it says when we were in the flesh and we were married to the law, we didn't bear fruit to God, right? What did we bear fruit to? Fruit to death. To death. Yep. Why? Because our sinful desires were aroused by the law. They were woken up, brought to life by the law. So what Paul is beginning to do here is explain a verse that we looked at right at the start this morning and a verse that, well, a verse about a little bit over a chapter ago. So the second to last verse in the book in chapter 5 of Romans said, Now the law came in so that transgression may increase, but where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. And like I said at the time, and I've probably said a few times since then, that's not what we tend to think. We tend to think that rules make us better, right? That they make us sin less. But Paul says that with God's law, it's exactly the opposite. That uh, God's law doesn't make us better, it makes us worse. And so here in chapter 7, Paul is finally starting to explain why that is, why it is that God's law leads to more sin. And what he says is that rather than sanctify us, God's law, uh, yeah, rather than sanctify us, God's law like wakes our sin up, it like stirs it up so that it's even stronger. Uh, it brings it to life, but we'll, we'll talk more about that soon. First, when was, when was it that our sinful desires bore fruit to death? Before we were justified. Yeah, it was when we were in the flesh or as King James says, when we were controlled by our sinful nature. Um, yep back then, before we were saved, before we were set free. 
the sinful desires bore fruit to death. But now we have been released from the law and we've died to that which controlled us. Why were we released from the law and why did we die to what controlled us? What was the purpose? Why were we set free from the law? To bear fruit to God. What does he say here? So that we may serve in the new life. We may serve. So this is something that's really important to understand. We're not set free from the law so that we can stop serving God. We're actually set free from the law so that we can serve God even better, is the idea. How do we do that? By serving Him in... How do we serve Him better? Serve Him in the new life of the Spirit. That word spirit should actually jump out to you because we've now studied 167 verses in the book of Romans. And this is only the fourth time that Paul has used the word spirit. Which should kind of surprise you, right? Because given just how important God's spirit is in our Christian life. But don't worry. Uh, he's getting there, basically. In fact, this is the first hint of what is probably the most important part of his entire argument, certainly as it relates to our sanctification. For now, Paul's describing what sanctification is, what it looks like, and what it involves. But in chapter 8, Paul's going to begin to explain how it is that, how it works, how it is that we are sanctified. And spoiler he uses the word spirit 22 times in Romans chapter 8. Right? That's where it's building to. For now, he's talking, 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 and he's explaining how things should be, but he's not explaining, he hasn't yet told us how it happens. Chapter 8 is where he like explains how it happens. And it's all about God's spirit. 22 times. Uh it's God's Spirit that gives us the power to do the things that He's been describing to us in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Does that make sense? Yes. So we're getting there. It's God's Spirit that sanctifies us. And we talked about that, if you remember, way back early on, uh, on our Friday night study, on the like what the roles of the, of the Holy Spirit is. One of the things that we said he does is he sanctifies us. And that's that's what we're talking about here. It's God's spirit that actually gives us the power to be sanctified, to do the things that Paul's telling us about um, in these chapters. But for now, he says, and like he gives us a hint of that, he says that we've been released from the law. We've died to what controlled us so that we may serve in the new life of the spirit and there's a hint there that the spirit is really important in terms of actually making this possible. We looked at the fruit of the spirit just now in uh, as Paul describes them to the Galatians, but a few verses before that passage, Paul explains how we receive the fruit. And he says, "But I say, live by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the spirit." And the spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other so that you cannot do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. 
And so the way that we serve God, the way to serve God is to be led by God's spirit, not controlled by his law. Does that make sense? Like we'd think we've got God's law. It's going to keep us in line, traveling in the right direction. But what Paul's saying is actually that's not how you serve God. What The way you actually serve God is just to follow God's spirit wherever it leads you. Whatever he says to you, do that. Don't worry about the law. Don't worry about sin and whatnot. Just do what God's spirit tells you to do is kind of the idea. Um, that's why we've been released from the law. We've been released from God's law so that we can serve him in the spirit. Any questions or thoughts? The last thing that's worth noticing in this in verses five and six is is the um, in verses one through four and actually in the last chunk of chapter six, Paul was using second person plural pronouns, basically like you all. He's speaking generally about you people out there kind of thing. It's general terms, but in verse five he shifts to like be more personal. He starts talking about we first person plural, and then from verse 7, he's going to get even more personal. It's I. He's, he's not telling us general like theological principles. He's describing, he's talking about his own personal experiences. But anyway, we'll get there soon. Verse 7. Who wants to read? Oh, yeah. Just the start of verse 7. Yeah. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Okay, so why is Paul asking this? Because that's what the people would ask. Why would they ask that? Because he just said the law is bad. Well, <laughs> he's just said that, uh, what? The law arouses our sinful desires. He says that, in order to bear fruit for God, for God, we have to die to the law. In order to serve God, we need to be released from the law. And so, yeah, like one might, uh, one might begin to wonder, like, is there something wrong with God's law? Is God's law actually sinful? And Paul's answer is... No. <laughs> Absolutely not. He uses that a lot, right? Absolutely not. All these, yeah, anyway... At, win at uh, yeah, Winter Cultivate in July, we looked at Psalm 19, and I don't remember the context, maybe you guys will, um, but regardless, this is how David describes God's law, and it's quite beautiful. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, and it preserves one's life. The rules set down by the law are reliable and impart wisdom to the inexperienced. The Lord's precepts are fair and make one joyful. The Lord's commands are pure and give insight for life. The command to fear the Lord, the commands to fear the Lord are right and endure forever. The judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and absolutely just. They are greater, they are of greater value than gold, than even great amount of pure gold. They bring greater delight than honey, and even the sweetest honey from a honeycomb. So According to David, God's law is perfect, reliable, fair, pure, trustworthy, and just. It's more precious than gold, and it's sweeter than chocolate. So no, 
God's law is not sinful. James describes God's law. Do you guys remember how James describes God's law? He gives this analogy. It's quite cool. He describes it as a mirror. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. For anyone who merely listens to the word and doesn't do what it says is like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror. He gazes at himself and then goes out and immediately forgets what sort of person he was. But whoever peers into the perfect law of freedom and fixes his attention there, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And so the analogy is that like, well, that God's word shows us what kind of people we are, what, what sort of person we are. Like a mirror, it reflects, it shows us the dirt that's on our face. And obviously, if you have a mirror that is dirty, it's not going to reflect your dirt very well, right? It's not going to be very easy to see what's on your face if the mirror is covered in dirt. But obviously, the cleaner the mirror is, the more clearly it's going to reflect yourself to yourself, that it's going to reflect your dirt to yourself. And so God's law is perfectly pure. That's what it says in Psalm 19. And so God's law reflects our impurity perfectly. Make sense? Yeah. And we don't always like what we see in the mirror, but again, that's not the mirror's fault. And that's basically the idea. Just because the law shows us our sinfulness, that doesn't mean the law is sinful. We're sinful. It's just reflecting us really well kind of thing. And so if you remember back in chapter 3, Paul said, For no one is declared righteous before God by the works of the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so it is through the law that we come to know by experience what sin is. Okay. Let's keep reading. Uh, you can finish verses 7 and verse 8 of chapter 7. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. What's Paul saying? He's saying he wouldn't have known he was a sinner without the law saying he was a sinner. Mm -hmm. And what happened when the law said that when the law said that he shouldn't do something? He did it. Well, he felt, he felt the need to. He wanted to, right? Paul's saying that the very command not to do something made him want to do it. Is there anybody here who can't relate to that? Sounds kind of like people in lockdown rules. <laughs> Sounds like people full stop, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is. There are, I think, few passages in the Bible that describe 
reality as we experience it more precisely than these ones. I, like they, it, it amazes me. There is nothing like a red button with a sign that says "Do not press" to make me desperately, desperately want to push that red button. <laughs> and it's it's the classic like whatever you do, do not think about a pink elephant. <laughs> Years and years ago, I, I don't remember exactly how old I was. <laughs> I don't remember how old I was. I was probably like seven or eight. Uh, I was visiting, I was at my grand's house in South Africa and she must have been baking or something because she had cocoa powder out. And I smelt the cocoa powder and I'm like, that smells delicious. And she said, don't eat that. It doesn't taste nice. Do you think I listened to her? <laughs> Do you think that helped? No, I just argued and argued with her until eventually she's like, okay, fine, try it. And I discovered something new that day. That <laughs> things that smell delicious can taste disgusting. And beeswax. Well, like, like, like beeswax, like every like soap shop and uh, yes, vanilla <laughs> essence. I don't know about that. Vanilla essence is the same and I had to test that one out too. Here's, Quite it's because they're like vanilla flavored things, so you think it tastes good. Well, you smell it. It smells delicious. How can it not taste the way it smells? But yeah, anyway, <laughs> doesn't. So there's a there's another really good story about a hotel in um, Texas called the Flagship Hotel, and it was built in the 1960s on this abandoned pier that used to have an amusement park on it. And when they built it, they realized that. People might think it's a good idea to fish from their balconies because they're out over the water. And so they put signs on all the balconies that said, do not fish on balcony. And then they opened their hotel and what do you think happened? Everybody fish from the balcony. Everybody fish from the balcony. And so they had people would attach like lead sinkers to their lines and they'd cast out to the sea, but sometimes they wouldn't let enough line out. And so the line would swing back around and they had plate glass windows all around on the bottom floor where their dining room was. And these sinkers would smash into the windows and break the windows and upset obviously the guests who were having breakfast. Um, <laughs> so, oh my problem. gosh. Turned out there was a very simple solution. What do you think that was? Get rid of balconies? No. <laughs> Take away the signs? They took away the signs. No way. It just removed the do not dis do not fish from balcony signs and apparently then the problem went away. No way. <laughs> what? So because they people didn't to fish think because the signs People didn't think to fish from the balcony until they saw the sign that said don't fish from the balcony. And then they thought, huh, <laughs> that's a good idea. And so anyway, that's the problem. Problem. As soon as there's a line, we immediately want to cross it. And this isn't a new story, right? This is the same story that goes right back to the beginning, right back to the Garden of Eden. God creates this perfect world. Is there any sinning in it? No. Why? Because it's perfect. God created it. The people in it had no knowledge of sin or what it was. There was no real opportunity to sin, right? Because you can't want to do something that you don't know about. If you've never heard of chocolate, seen chocolate, tried chocolate, are you going to desire chocolate? No. no. Are you sure? Yes. 
Same thing, like, if you've, if you've never watched a movie with swearing in it, if nobody around... In fact, this is kind of was my experience, because in South Africa growing up, when I was young, uh, they censored movies, and they didn't just censor, like, all movies. And they didn't just beep out the words, they cut it out, so it wasn't even there. And so when I came to New Zealand and I was 11, there were a whole bunch of words that I had literally never heard of before. And... And I arrived here at 11 and all the 11 year old kids around me are saying them. Uh, but anyway, the point is, if you, if you don't know what, what swearing is, are you going to want to swear? No. no. You can't, right? And that's because knowledge always precedes temptation or desire. You, right? It comes first. You can't desire something unless you know about it. So if you don't know... You can't want it, and if you do know, well, you can and you usually will. And so Adam and Eve were given every good thing. I suspect they probably were given like intellect beyond our comprehension, but there was one thing that was withheld from them. There was one thing that they were not supposed to do. What was that? Eat the uh, fruit. Do not eat. <laughs> do not eat the apple or whatever. Yeah. What was it called? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, so I think, I think that's really important. It's not the tree of good and evil. It's not like they ate the fruit and then suddenly they were filled with all sorts of evil. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before Adam and Eve... Yep. Before Adam and Eve ate from that fruit, they had no knowledge of good of what was good and what was evil. And if we say that they had no knowledge of what was good and what was evil, what we're actually saying is that there was no law because that's exactly what the law does. The law differentiates, it divides between what is good and what is evil. The law is the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so if there is no, if there is no law, uh, well, so let's say, yeah. If there's no law, then is there an opportunity to break the law? Not really. No, because no. there's no rules to break. There's, no, there's nothing to break. So there's no opportunity to break the law. And if there's no opportunity to break the law, then can there be any desire to break the law? No. No. Break. <laughs> there's nothing to break. There's nothing to want to break. And so to me, it isn't that difficult to understand that Adam and Eve were sinless before they fell because they couldn't really be anything other than that. But there was this one rule, one opportunity to do something that they were not supposed to do. And in choosing to break that one rule, they, cho they chose to know what was good and what was evil. They chose to know the law. And I don't know, I don't know exactly how they received that knowledge. In fact, I don't... They don't really. They didn't really need to know good, right? Because really, good. They knew good. Good was all they knew. But they didn't know it as good because good as opposed to what. But in, I think that what they uh, what they really received was the knowledge of evil. That in some way they suddenly became aware of all these things they could do that that they had never known before, that they never thought of before, and depending on how extensive that first revelation was that may have been quite terrifying because we can do we can do 
terrible, terrible things. And I suspect that probably they were horrified by most of the things that they, whatever, became aware of. But the ball had started rolling and little by little, desire would creep in to try this and to try that and the rest is history. We know how that story ends. And so to me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not actually very difficult to understand. It's explained entirely in its name. It gave the knowledge of good and evil. And, and it's not surprising to me if you think that through that, like, the consequences of choosing that it is not a mystery. It's obvious. It's logical. It's, ex it's what we observe to be true. Uh, that's how the law works. That's how no the, the knowledge of good and evil works. And we'll talk more about that in maybe chapter 13 or something of why it's so important to keep, keep knowledge of, well, Paul says to be innocent in evil and basically don't let it into you because once that knowledge is into you, it allows you to have desires that you would not have otherwise had. And so anyway, we'll talk about that when we get there. But with the knowledge of the law, comes the opportunity to break the law. Once there's an opportunity to break the law, it's possible to desire to break the law. And once you desire to break God's law, game over, right? That's sin. That's exactly what we mean when we say that man is sinful. We're saying that in his inner being, he has a desire to break God's law. There's a <clears throat> famous English journalist called Malcolm Muggridge. He once wrote that the depravity of man, we'll talk about that a little bit more, um, but depravity, do you guys know what depravity means? Deprived of something, is that like taken away? No, it's no. not. Like that. Is it depravity of moral compass? Yeah, it's, it's being depraved as opposed to deprived, it's being depraved and it's basically twisted and, uh, yeah, twisted, perverted morally. And it's basically this, it's, it's talking about the fact that in our very like deepest being, we are broken and we are sinful, that we desire to do wrong kind of thing, um, or that we have a desire to do wrong. And he says that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, and, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact that no one who looks at themselves honestly and looks at the world around them honestly could deny the innate sinfulness of man, the innate depravity of man. It is, it is the, he says, most empirically verifiable, basically you can prove it with, with data and facts, basically, uh, more than anything else. It's absolutely clear, but it's also the thing that we resist the most, that we don't want to admit to ourselves and we don't want to admit, admit to other people. But anyway, it's exactly that depravity, that innate, that inner sinfulness that Paul is describing here. He says that, I would not have known sin except through the law but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. And so again, notice that Paul is speaking in the first person. 
This is, I would not have known what sin was. Sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. He's talking about his own personal experience as a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Of the most religious, holy person there is. This was his experience. That when he was presented with rules from God, his inner being desperately wanted to break those rules. Uh, and then also notice that it's not the law that produced these wrong desires, this covetousness in Paul. It was the sin that was already in him that used the law to produce those desires. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not God's commands that produce the desires on their own. It's we're sinful. And when God gives us a command, our sinful nature is like, hmm, wonder what it would be like to break that. Right? It's the idea. Okay. Uh, we looked at something from St. Augustine previously as well. St. Augustine was a an early Christian theologian. He was bishop of a place called Hippo in North Africa. Um, and he, in around about 400 AD, so a long time ago, which is the point. This is not new. This is the experience of man, basically. And he wrote about his experiences when he was a young man. He said that there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. Does that make sense? Like he's talking about the same thing and he's saying basically the only reason he wanted to steal was because there was a law that said don't steal. And the law provides that opportunity to our sinful self to create within us desires that we would maybe not otherwise have had. So that is why the law causes transgression to increase, causes sin to increase, which we've looked at in Romans 5. That's the reason why uh, our... The reason why we come to know what sin is through God's law, it's because, as Paul has said, our sinful desires are aroused by the law. They're brought to life. They're awoken by the law. But now we have been released from the law. Verse 6, we've died to the law, as he said in verse 4. And so what does that mean? Essentially, and this is, yeah, this is kind of amazing. And this is, this is actually the point that he's making is that we essentially by dying to the law and being freed from the law, we have been returned to our Edenic state. We've been returned to basically the, the state that Adam and Eve were in before they ate the fruit. Does that make sense? Remember, why were Adam and Eve sinless before they ate the fruit? Because there was no law. Because there was no law to break. 
right? And that's what Paul is saying is our situation now. There's no law. The law is gone. We cannot break the law, right? There's no, no longer any law. And with the law goes the opportunity to break God's law. If there's no law, there's nothing to break. And if there's nothing to break, well then, what should happen? Well, what should happen? With the law comes the opportunity to break the law. And with the opportunity to break the law comes what? People actually breaking the law. Before that. The desire to break. The desire to break the law, right? Which is really, that's, that's really what sin is. Actually doing it as, to a certain extent in the Old Testament, people tended to think that way, right? That it's only if you do it that you've broken the law. But Jesus' point in Sermon on the Mount, no was that actually no if you're even that the, the sin comes even before that it's the fact that you want to break it that's sin already right and so what paul is saying here is that the law is gone for you as a christian so the opportunity to break the law is also gone there's nothing to break and if there's nothing to break then what should happen if you understand what if you understand your position properly is the desire to sin should drop as well because there's nothing to break. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so our freedom from the law isn't, and this is, the, this is lots of people's concern, right? If you tell people you're not going to be judged for your sins, then, well, that might lead them to sin more. And, but Paul's point is, so being released, being made free from God's law shouldn't increase our desire to sin. What it should actually do is reduce the influence of sin on us. Does that make sense? Yes. It's supposed to return us to a state where we don't worry about sin. We don't worry about God's law. We simply do what comes naturally to us now that we've been born again. We simply follow God's spirit wherever he leads us without worrying about all of these other things, you know? And if you're following, and that's, I think, what he said in, in Galatians, if you're following, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're being led by the Spirit, you're not going to break the law. But you don't have to worry about that anyway. Like, just, just worry about following God where He wants you to go and doing what He wants you to do. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Uh, um. Yeah, but as I said, chapter 8 will make the point that like, well, we'll explain how how that happens. And it's not in our strength. It's, it's we have to be following God's spirit. But like I said, uh, we tend to struggle to appropriate this grace, to um, understand our freedom and to understand the position that we have in Jesus. But I think that this is really the very foundation of Christian living. It is that there is no law. You have been set free. So just live. But live how? And like I said, chapter 8, Paul will explain that living, that real life is in following God's spirit. And if you do that, then none of this other stuff will matter anyway. Okay, so then verses 9 to 12, which we'll finish with. Oh, 
Yeah. Well, that that's uh, that was his point. We're set free from the law. The law is gone. If the law is gone, so is the opportunity to sin. If the opportunity to break the law is gone, then the desire should go too, because apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay. And then verses 9 through 12, who wants to read? I can. Thank you. And I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandments, sin became alive and I died. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it I died. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Okay. So... Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. When was that? Do you think? I would have guessed before he became a Christian when he was going around persecuting the church, maybe. That's when he was alive apart from the law? Apart from the law. As a small oh, baby, not yeah. knowing why Because apart from the law, I'm assuming it means like he didn't know the law. Yep. Well, yes, he didn't. Uh, he didn't know. Yeah, he didn't know the law. And when he when he didn't know the law, he was alive. So I think I think what you're saying is right, Ryan. That um, I think he probably means when he was a child before he reached what is uh, often called the age of accountability. So. In Jewish thought, children weren't responsible for their actions until they were old enough to actually understand the decisions that they were making. And traditionally, that was thought to be around about um, 12 or 13. Oh, that's fair. And that's when, uh, in Jewish culture, they celebrate their bar mitzvah, which literally means son of the commandment or son of command, yeah, son of the commandment. And that's the ceremony that marks the moment when they become responsible to keep God's law. Yeah? I'm trying to imagine if I was accountable for everything I did when I was 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit scary, eh? You guys are there. Just a bit. Well, but, yeah, well, but. But justified, right? You've been set free from the law, released from the law. But Paul wasn't. Paul, as a child, wasn't accountable to do what he, well, you know. But the idea was that until you were old enough to be responsible for yourself, your parents were responsible for you. So basically, when you were doing, when you were sinning, it was actually your parents' sins kind of thing. Uh, but, but it came to this point where it's, okay, now you are responsible for yourself. And that was the moment when he became, like, aware of the law, right, and knew the law. Yeah. Um, and so what Paul's saying is that before he knew the law, his sinful nature was kind of like lying dormant. It was there, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't affecting him that much. But the moment that the commandments came, the moment that, uh, yeah, the moment that the commandments came, that sin that was already in him sprung to life. 
and uh, well, yeah. With the coming of the commandment, sin became alive. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. So the sin that was already in him sprang to life and seized the opportunity that was provided by the law to deceive him. In what way do you think young Paul was deceived by sin? How does sin deceive us? Tempts us. How does it deceive you? What does deceive mean? Trick you. It makes you think it's not as bad as it really is. So or nothing will really happen. Yeah. I think so I, I think that this I think that's one of the ways it deceives you is that it convinces you that what you're doing is not actually like you're not actually gonna get in trouble for it. It's not actually wrong. It's uh yeah, it's the reason why when you read laws, they tend to be written like this. No person shall, without privilege to do so, knowingly move, deface, damage, destroy, or otherwise improperly tamper with a smoke detector. Why do they need to use all those words? So you don't find a loophole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? You'd be like, I didn't tamper with it. I just moved it out of the house. Or I didn't damage it. I destroyed it, Right? We're always going to find ways around the law, and, and that's what sin does in, in us, is it, it, it convinces us that, that there's a loophole, that somehow we're not going to be held responsible for this thing. Uh, you know, did God really say, etc. So that I would say that that's one way that sin deceives us. What's another way that sin deceives us? So it's justified that nothing really matters. Nothing that we do really matters. And so we can say however we like. Yep. I would say that's probably related still. It's like convincing you that you're not doing or that you're not going to get in trouble for what you're doing. Oh, right. Eden says you'll only do it once. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Is it really a sin if it doesn't take too too long? <laughs> I would say that one of the big one of the big deceptions of sin is it promises more than it than it provides. It promises satisfaction and leaves you empty. It promises you the world and and leaves you with nothing. So anyway, sin de deceives from the beginning, right? And that's why the the writer to um, the Hebrews wrote, but encourage to us, speaking to us, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, in other words, we're supposed to help each other not be deceived by sin. How do you think we do that? Keep sharing the word. Yep. I think one of the ways is by sharing the truth, right? That's what Jesus says. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That if we are sharing with, with each other the truth of God, that's going to counteract the lies of sin, say. Um, yeah. And then I think the other thing is, 
by sharing our own experiences with other people, we will uh, make it less, well, we can help, you know, when we've been lied to by sin and we've been promised the world and then found it left us with nothing, when you share that with other people, then they're less likely, hopefully, to believe the lies that sin tells them kind of thing. But anyway, so Paul says that in his experience, this law that was supposed to bring him life, the very commandment that was intended to bring life, brought death. death. The law brought death. I, yeah. So we've talked, we've talked somewhat about prophetic patterns, and we talked about this a lot when we were studying the book of Ruth, that there are these patterns in the Bible that are prophetic, that teach stuff. And like the whole book of Ruth was basically like a prophetic pattern. This is actually, um, there's actually a really cool prophetic pattern involved in what, in this here. So Paul says that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. The law brought death. In his letter to the Corinthians, he says, But our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate to be servants of the new covenant, not based on the letter, but on the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And in context, this the old covenant, the covenant that was based on the letter, is the Old Testament law. It's the law that was written on, carved on stone, and given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yeah? That's what he's talking about when he says, for the letter, the, the, the covenant of the letter. It's because it was written down. And, yeah, okay. So that covenant, the law kills, is what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians. Now, if you remember the story, Moses is up there on the mountain with God receiving the law. What, was, what happened down the bottom? Uh, people were mucking around. They were sinning and doing stuff they shouldn't have been. Yeah, more than just mucking around. They made like a golden calf and had broken the law before they even knew what it was. <laughs> yeah. Basically, they were like, uh, we don't know what's happened to Moses. He's been up there for ages. He's probably dead. We need to sort, we need to look after ourselves. And so they created for themselves an idol. They created a golden calf. And it's really important to remember like how dramatically God, the God who was giving his law to Moses up on that mountain, how dramatically he had revealed himself to his people, right? Because this is this is only happening 50 days after they left Egypt. So it's a little bit over two months since they crossed the... Under, a little bit under two months since they crossed the Red Sea. Yeah? Anyway, so it wasn't good. And it says that that day, about 3,000 of men of the people died. So that was the day that the law came. And what did the law bring? Yes. Death to about how many people? 3,000 people. Now, I said that this happened 50 days after they left Egypt. Yeah? So they left. When did they leave Egypt? I don't know the exact time. <laughs> what, what festival? Passover. Passover. The first Passover, right? That's where Passover was instituted. God passing over the houses of the Israelites, that's when they left Egypt. 50 days later is, uh, well, do you know what happens 50 days after Passover? 
3,000 men die. <laughs> well, 3,000 men die. And, and 50 days after Passover is what's called Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. Do you guys remember hearing the Feast of Weeks? Yeah. I've heard of it. That's the feast during which the Jewish people read a particular book. Do you remember which book? Ruth. Yeah, it's the book of Ruth. This is the, the harvest. This is the feast, feast of the harvest, the Feast of Weeks. And they read the book of Ruth. And it happens 50 days after, the, uh, after, after Passover. Now, any, well, okay. So the Greek word for this feast is Pentecost, which means 50, 50 days. What happened on Pentecost? Spirit. Acts 2. Now, when the day of Pentecost, this is the Feast of Weeks. This is the same day that the law was given 2,000 years earlier, or ish, 2,000-ish years earlier, right? This is the same celebration. The day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place, they being the disciples. The disciples were all together. And suddenly a sound like a violent wind blowing from heaven came and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And tongues spreading, spreading out like a fire appeared to them and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So about 2,000 years after the law was given, on the exact same day, on the Feast of Pentecost, uh, God gave His Spirit to His disciples, right? To His believers, to those who had believed in Jesus. And then it says, Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem. When the sound occurred, a crowd gathered and was in confusion because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Completely baffled, they said, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? And so anyway, Peter, Apostle Peter, stands up and he gives this amazing sermon. And then it says, With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added. What? That's cool. See the pattern, the beauty? I had not noticed that. <laughs> the law was given and about 3,000 men died. The Spirit was given, and about 3,000 men found life. Because the letter kills, and the Spirit brings life. Awesome. Cool, right? Anyway, so for now, Paul is still answering the question, is the law sin? And his point is, no, the law is not, the law is not the problem, right? It's the sin in me that uses the law to produce death. And so Paul concludes that the law then is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And we'll leave it there for today and pick up the rest of his argument next week. What do you guys think? What stands out to you? Yeah, 3,000 dying with the law and then 3000 coming to Christ at Pentecost, I thought was really cool. Yeah, I was about to say the same. It's always cool when stuff in the Bible kind of like lines up. Yeah, yeah. It's like back in Sinai when 3000 people died, God 
there was a reason why 3,000 people died or and why it was 3,000 people, I guess, because God knew what was going to happen, what he was going to do later. And I think it's, yeah, it's just like this, this beautiful picture, like such a great picture of what Paul's been explaining to us, which is that the law brings death, but what God wants for us is not the law and it's not death, it's his spirit and it's life. What else? The fact that Adam and Eve were given one rule, and because of the one rule they were given, they uh, they ate the fruit and unlocked everything. Just quite interesting. It's like that if they had that one, they had the one rule, but because there was that one rule, they thought you know. What, what would it be like if I broke that rule? Yep. That would have been the first sinful desire. Right? To break the rule, to eat the fruit. Yeah, I think so. My thoughts aren't like 100% clear on it. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. I guess it was the first time that sin deceived. And maybe that first time that deception came from outside. It was Satan, right? Yeah. But that after that, once they knew, then then that desire came from the inside. But I did sort of wonder, like, is it just was it just inevitable? Was the only way to get us to a point where we would choose to trust God and to to desire him over sin was for us to go through this, basically, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's why he said the rule, because he knew it'd be broken. Yeah. And that 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 his what he what he what he his goal, I guess, is to have a, a people who are sanctified who can again, like enjoy his presence forever, who can't, who will, who will genuinely be happy to be in heaven and to be subject to him, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, but it's confusing. Why was the, why was the knowledge of, of, of good and evil so significant? They hadn't known what what it was. Oh man, how do you explain that? Once they did know that there was a lot of new things that they hadn't thought of mm-hmm. before, and knowing the knowing the bad. What, what, knowing what's good and what's bad, what like the desire to do both, either, no, I mean, the bad. Yeah, well, it gave the opportunity to do stuff, right? That they, that they otherwise wouldn't have wanted to do and or wouldn't have known to do. And once you have that opportunity, then there's the opportunity to start wondering, like, well, I wonder what that would be like. 
Yeah. I think the one of the really important things that the one of the really important points that Paul's making here is that like I I remember I read a post a blog post by a rabbi once frustrated by the fact that the law didn't seem to make people better. <laughs> and which is sanctify, right? The law doesn't sanctify us. And at least in their minds, that's what that's why the law was given was to make us better, to sanctify us. And like I said, he was frustrated by the fact that it didn't seem to do that. And and I actually wrote to him and basically was like, there was another rabbi once who uh, was like thinking through these things. And, and this was the conclusion he came to was that this, the law cannot sanctify us because of our sinful desires. All it can do is stir up for us more desires, more sinful desires. And so, yeah, so this, the law cannot sanctify us. We actually need to be set free from the law and be filled with God's spirit and be led by God's spirit if we actually want to be sanctified. Did you get a response? No. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, we'll stop there and pray. Yeah, Lord, uh, again, just like praise you and thank you for the incredible, incredible privilege we've been given, the position that you've placed us in, Lord, that you've not only justified us so that our future is secure, but you've also set us free from sin and you've set us free from your law, which is just amazing. And I ask that you would help us to understand what that means, to like really understand what that means and that, that through your spirit in us, you would reduce the influence of sin in us, that we wouldn't have that desire to break that which is no longer relevant to us. Lord, and that, uh, yeah, again, that you would begin and continue that process of sanctification in our lives, where we begin more and more to reflect you, to reflect, to produce fruit, to bear fruit for you, to look more like you, and to, like I said, to become the sort of people you want us to be for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.